Okay, so I'm just going to get into it, and because we're sort of an intimate crowd, I'm going to um, I'm going to hopefully do less preaching, and and maybe we'll um, we'll preach together. Uh, we've been doing this um, little thing called the narrative lectionary, which is not something we invented, but it's a way of um, getting the like contours or the big picture or the arc of the Bible. Um, there's a lot of churches do something called the lectionary, but it's sort of, um, they give you the option of four different texts and it's kind of all over the place. And theoretically in three years, you'll cover most of the Bible. But this is designed within, the, within about nine months. So like an academic year, you get sort of the, the greatest hits, not all the like most famous stories, but things that are supposed to um, give you a picture of the character of God, the character of the relationship humans have with God as presented by the Bibles. Kind of like um, a sketch of who it is, Jews and Christians, if you include the New Testament, which we do, um, who they're talking about when they say the word God. Um, that word is so loaded with, um, with stuff, with uh, with uh, junk, uh, some of it's junk, I think, um, people's mistaken ideas about who this God is, and also our own preconceptions. Um, and I'm kind of, a, I kind of started being religious from the sort of philosophical standpoint. So the idea of God having a personality or character or nature identity is weird to me, but it's exciting and interesting. And I think, um, something that distinguishes being religious from just being a kind of uh, philosopher is that religious people claim that all, what's ultimately true, what's ultimately beautiful, what brings us fully alive and fully in relationship with the world and with others has, the, has a personality. And, and, and viewing that ultimate truth and, relation, and, and reality as personal in some way, some, something someone one can be in relationship with is, uh, leads to a richer, fuller um, existence. So that's what we're, that's what we're trying to do, um, with, with a healthy dose of skepticism, too. Um, so we've gone through Genesis, where you know, creation, the Garden of Eden, God gets mad when humans disobey through, uh, through this idea of covenant that emerges with Abraham. So God, sometime, somehow God and humanity enters a pact, an agreement, a covenant that um, that uh, if both parties, if humanity and God, keep up their end of the bargain to be in relationship, uh, things are going to turn out. Um, and then uh, the story after that is that what happens when that goes wrong and humans kind of keep screwing up. And you know, this might sound scandalous, but sometimes I feel like God struggles with the covenant too because in relation. So it's, it's a real relationship where people are struggling. Today we're talking about Exodus, and the text that the narrative lectionary gave us is kind of a bizarre one. It's not the part of the Exodus that you think of when the story part. It's this weird little part, and I'm going to read it just because it's it's a little potentially boring, but I'm going to make it interesting. I'm going to read it so interestingly. Um, the, it's the part where after, can someone like give a brief synopsis, like 30 seconds of the Exodus story. Is anyone brave enough to try that? <laughs> no way. Yeah. And they get 
Hey, that's pretty good, yeah. <laughs> what were they delivered from? Why do they need to get out of Egypt, though? They're in slavery, yeah. So last week we talked about the Joseph story where like, for a while, Egypt and Israel were cool. Like, like Joseph, um, this patriarch, was like advisor to the pharaoh. And, and that pharaoh was portrayed as like pretty humane, good leader, took the advice, like provided a safe place for, for the Israelites to, to settle. We're told here that uh, something went wrong. They forgot. They forgot how, the debt to the, 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 the Jews and um, decided to enslave them. This pharaoh is not as chill. This pharaoh um, is, uh, reminds me a little bit of one of the candidates for this election. I'm not going to say which one. Um, but it's, uh, this pharaoh is um, uh, a, strong, a strong leader, uh, rules with a sort of iron fist, and um, talks about strength a lot. So um, there are these plagues. Moses, you know, you know that some of this stuff. If you don't, um, I'm, I, it's, it's too rich and complicated to go into the details. But basically, Moses is uh, an Israelite. There's this decree to kill all the firstborn um, of, of the Jews that the Pharaoh puts out because they're getting a little bit uh, uh, too numerous and too restless. So kind of a strong show of force. Moses, like Moses' mother puts him in the little basket in the reeds. The Pharaoh's daughter finds him. He's raised as this uh, in the royal court. Eventually, he becomes a leader. He gets cast out. He, kill, he, sees, one, um, uh, Egypt, he sees an Egyptian uh, abusing an Israelite, and he kills the Egyptian because he's so mad, because he still, he still identifies with his people. Gets kicked out, comes back. God tells him, you're going to save, save his people. And Moses says, what the heck are you talking about? I, um, this is one of my favorite parts of this story, most fascinating parts. He says, I'm heavy of mouth and heavy of tongue. How am I supposed to lead my people? How am I supposed to be a great speaker to rally the, the people and, and uh, inspire them to leave? And um, a friend of mine, a good friend of mine, has a, a speech impediment. He struggles uh, with stuttering. Um, and, and for him, uh, this idea that the, the, the leader of the Israelite people may have been a stutterer, that's one theory. He may have just been a, a, not the best speaker, but that's one theory, is really powerful for him. It's powerful for me, too, because I feel like whenever I, listen, whenever I listen to myself talk, I'm like, oh my gosh, that's how I sound. You know, like that's, uh, and, and that even us in our stammering, weird, um, individual, idiosyncratic ways can be vessels of, of liberation, and God's love is, is powerful for me. So, plagues come, God, uh, you know, the 10 plagues, does anyone remember what some of them are? What are the plagues? Flies, Flies locusts. Blood. Water blood. Yeah, the Nile turns to blood. It's very, it's very like, uh, scary movie. Frogs. Whales? Boils. <laughs> Whales rain from the sky. <laughs> uh, boils, yep, that's right. Yep. So that the 10th and, and kind of most intense plague is God threatens to do what Pharaoh tried to do earlier, which is kill all the firstborn of the Egyptians, including the cattle. Um, 
So, and does it? Exodus story does it. So, so that's something we have to wrestle with. As we're trying to get a picture of who God is, God is in this book a destroyer. God is in this book is like kind of raw brute power, sided. We're told with the Israelites, with the ones who are oppressed. So that's something we like to hear. Oh, God is with us in in our struggle. God is with the oppressed, the marginalized. But God is also this kind of brute force that uh, does not jive well with our modern ideas of justice. So the passage I'm going to read now is when, uh, after this has happened, there's this weird moment where God tells the Israelites how they need to remember what's happened. Um, and, and this is the beginning of the Passover story, the Passover ritual which Jewish people you know, celebrate every year, and which Christians, the thing we'll do later, communion, um, Christians believe that the Last Supper that Jesus uh, spent with his disciples the day before he was killed by the state um, uh, was the first night of Passover, or possibly the night before. So um, this is something that is uh, at the root of something very important to Christian identity. Um, and here's the story of, of the first one, or, or of God telling them how they should do it. So it's Exodus 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall mark for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell the whole congregation of Israel that on the 10th of this month, they are to take a lamb for each family, a lamb for each household. If a household is too small for a whole lamb, it shall join its closest neighbor in obtaining one. Hi, Hans. The lamb shall be divided in proportion to the number of people who eat it. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a year-old male. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the 14th day of this month. Then the whole assembled congregation of Israel shall slaughter it at twilight. They shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. I think the lintel is this part. Does that sound right? <laughs> they shall eat the lamb that same night. They shall eat it roasted over the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roast it over the fire with its head, legs, and inner organs. You shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. This is how you shall eat it. Your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it hurriedly. Hurriedly? <laughs> it's a hard word. Hurriedly. It is the Passover of the Lord. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike down every firstborn in the land of Egypt, both human beings and animals. On all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. When I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague shall destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is the first to open the womb among the Israelites of human beings and animals is mine. Moses said to the people, Remember this day on which you came out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, because the Lord brought you out from there by strength of hand. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today, in the month of Abib, you are going out. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your ancestors to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this observance in this month. 
Seven days shall you eat unleavened bread. On the seventh day there shall be a festival to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen in your possession, and no leaven shall be seen among you in all your territory. You should tell your child on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. Okay. Allison has agreed to read our, our second reading, our non-biblical reading for the day, and you may not see exactly how it relates at first, but go, go do it. Anxiety is inevitable in an age of crisis like ours. Don't make it worse by deceiving yourself and acting as if you were immune to all inner trepidation. God does not ask you to feel anxious, but to trust him no matter how you feel. Thomas Burke. Can you read that last one, the last line again? God does not ask you to feel, oh, sorry. God does not ask you not to feel anxious, but to trust him no matter how you feel. Thomas Burke. Thank you. Yeah, there was a two knots. That was, um, uh, thank you. That was, that was perfect. Um, the, uh, sorry to make you anxious if I asked you again. Um, so, uh, when, I was, um, when I was preparing this, there were so many different um, ways of approaching the story, so many different angles. I am fascinated. Has anyone ever been to a Passover Seder before? Yeah? Does any, has, have, you, have you noticed, and I've been to a few, and the first one I went to was from a friend in high school, with a friend in high school, her family. And I remember them rushing through the ceremony. Has anyone ever noticed that? Has it felt fast or rushed? So I don't think this is always done, but her family did it. And I, and I was kind of baffled. I was like, why, why are you speeding through this? Like, what's the, it, it seemed to me like they didn't really care about it. Like it was, ah, oh, this is a thing we do. It's just a, it's just a ritual. We got to get through it so we can eat dinner. And that to me was kind of like, well, don't you take this seriously? You know. Um, and it was only in, in reading this and, and reading a little bit that that's part of the ritual. That's, that's part of the ritual is this kind of cultivating a sense of rush, of being in a hurry. Um, you're supposed to eat, eat quickly, go through the things quickly. Um, and you know, here it says, when you're eating the lamb, you'll, your loins will be girded. Uh, and I, I looked this up. It's, when people used to wear like long flowing tunics, um, you know, it'd be hard to like uh, hunt or be in battle or run with this like big toga like thing. So girding your loins is uh, actually like taking the toga, pulling it up kind of like a diaper and putting it around. So it's like, it's like it converted into shorts, uh, man shorts. So, uh, so that's, that's but, but like be at the ready, be ready to go. And the same with the unleavened bread, you know, the, these, the flatbread, matzah, which um, I always found kind of disgusting, but also I love to eat it. Um, the, uh, uh, you know, they didn't have time to let the, the bread rise. It's sort of um, intentionally, ritually being a little anxious, being kind of in a hurry um, to, and this is weird, right? We think of religion, we think of church, we think of ritual as something that should, dissipate our anxiety, bring us into a state of peace and ah, help us breathe more deeply. And here's this ritual 
which is foundational for the, the Jewish people, the Jewish faith, and is taken up in Christianity on kind of an anxious night. We're remembering this anxious night, right, when Jesus is about to be killed. Um, and we're re why, are we, why are we remembering that? Why are we reminding of ourselves of this um, unsettling, unsettled uh, event? Um, I'm I think that's fascinating, and especially I think I'm drawn to it because I've struggled with anxiety in my own life. I've, I've been open about that. Um, totally in the past. Never, never do I feel anxious now. But, uh, um, and I, I remember, you know, it, it's, it's lovely how these things are passed down. I think my parents both have anxiety in different ways. Um, but just thinking about this hurried rushness, getting ready, um, I feel like now I understand why that why getting ready to go in my family was always such a time of anxiety now that we have a, a kid. Like, um, and, and I remember this thing that would almost always happen when we were, the whole family, two younger sisters, when we were all trying to get out the door um, in a rush. My mom would be like scrambling, like kids would be running everywhere, like I have to go to the bathroom. And my dad um, would uh, start playing the piano. Or we got a, a little while he had a drum set, he would start playing a drum set, and this would drive my mom crazy. Like, we're trying to get out the door, Bob. What are you doing, Bob? And my dad was like, and he played like one or two songs. Um, it was almost like a little ritual for him. And it drove my mom nuts. Like, his kind of like chill that, oh, it's, like that was, that, that made her even more anxious, right? Um, not, the, not the appropriate response. Um, so I used to think that anxiety was something to be, um, something to run away from itself. You know, uh, anxiety is classically the flight or flight response. You've heard that, like this, like evolutionarily built-in ancient instinct we have when a wildebeest or whatever, wilde uh, like a wild beast comes. <laughs> um, do I fight the lion or do I run away from it? Um, Anxiety for me was itself a thing that I wanted to fight or flee. And one of the things that's helped me a lot is um, learning not to be so anxious about anxiety. Uh, they have this great this minister, mentor, uh, teacher that um, I had um, said, said something that was really helpful to me, that anxiety is energy. And why am I going so much into anxiety? I think that part of the problem, part of what was keeping the Israelites in bondage, in servitude, in Egypt, was that even though things were awful, they weren't feeling their anxiety enough. And what we see happen with God coming into the mix is not, at least not right away, and not for a while, a kind of relaxation of the tension of the situation of, of oppression, but actually a heightening and a, and a dialing up the anxiety. There are these plagues and we hear God, this is something that to our modern minds is crazy and it, it's tempting just to totally ignore it or reject it or think those people were nuts. But Pharaoh, I mean, uh, God is like uh, sending these plagues to try to put pressure on Pharaoh to let the people go. But God is also saying, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. You remember that? Like, I'm going to like, I'm going to make, I'm going to strengthen Pharaoh's anxious resolve to not let the people go. He's going to cling even more anxiously and tightly to the people, um, not even let them go for a few days to worship their God, which is 
kind of a ruse anyways. But so God, and then God, when God reveals God's self to Moses on the mountain in this burning bush, Moses is freaked out. He is anxious. He's, he's also anxious about this call to be a leader, a prophetic leader. It's like, who am I? I can't speak. He just starts, you know, worrying. And that doesn't stop. When, when they go back and he tells Pharaoh and there's these plagues, he's like, God, this, things are even worse. You said this would help, and like now things are even worse, and they're oppressing us more, because Pharaoh like clamps down. Um, and God, interestingly, not only is he kind of heightening the anxiety, there, if you read not even between the lines, you get this sense that God is sort of taking up the anxiety and feeling it God's self. So there's this famous, famous line early on when God says, um, God, God is basically saying to Moses, you know, keep in mind this is after 430 years that the Jews were enslaved, we're told. Which interestingly enough, most of us will probably be alive when it's the 430th anniversary of when African-American slavery in the U.S. started, which is insane to think about. 1619 was when the first slaves came here. Um, so, uh, the, um, so God is like, God finally is saying, I've seen your I've, I've seen your pain. I've heard your cries. God is like hearing the anxious uh, suffering of the, of, the, of the Israelites. And then God, after Moses is like, God, I don't think I can do this. There's this really weird passage. Um, people don't even know what to make sense of it, where God, we're told, tries to kill Moses. And the only reason he doesn't is because Moses, his wife, quickly circumcises their son, Gershom, and like somehow takes the foreskin, somehow that appeases God. So it's like, is God having second thoughts about his choice? Is God anxious, God's self? What I'm trying to propose is that part of this story is that the thing, the thing that keeps us from being free is not necessarily our anxiety. You know, like I think often people oppose freedom with fear, and I think of anxiety as related to fear. That this story has a more complicated story to tell, that anxiety might actually be part of what, part of the path to freedom. Um, so, so there's this beautiful uh, interpretation. It's called Midrash. This is an interpretation of rabbinic scholars um, kind of reading between the lines of the stories, filling in where things don't make sense, um, using one's imagination to get at the deeper meaning. And there's this uh, midrash where, because how do we make sense, right, of God to liberate one people committing basically genocide to another? There's this midrash that says, when that happened, when all the firstborns, firstborn children of Egypt were killed, um, the angels in heaven were all celebrating. They had a big party. Like, yeah, we killed all these little babies. But God, in, in this little story, has become part of Jewish tradition. God says, stop. Don't celebrate. For they're my children, too. That God has maybe some worry, some anxiety about what had to happen or what did happen. That God is not a... Um, uh, 
even though we see God as this kind of warrior, this kind of uh, militaristic God here, that God is not the, the, let's bomb them all to hell. Let's like push the button. What did Trump say? If I were in like, and I saw that boat, I would bomb them. You know, like this kind of like, um, that, that something in God was not, um, was worried, was anxious about what happened to get them free. So, um, the, uh, the celebration of this anxiety, the remembrance of the anxiety, is also, it's not, it doesn't stay there. It doesn't stay in this anxious place. Um, in the, the Passover ritual, we're to remember um, two things. One is that this like remembrance of this pastime of anxiety that had an end point, that had a, a, a passage into something else, a passage into um, freedom. And the reason we need to keep remembering is that because to be a human being is to experience anxiety. This quote, I feel like, I feel like um, maybe it always feels this way, but if you're really paying attention right now, how can you not be a little anxious? You know, how can you, how can you not? And um, that doesn't mean we need to sit here simmering in just anxious nothingness, but to, to feel it, like to, to this quote by Thomas Merton, God doesn't ask us not to feel anxiety, but to trust that no matter how we feel, um, God is with us, God is there, and, uh, and that through feeling the anxiety, um, we, might actually, uh, we might actually be able to move through it into something else. So that's a, that's a little bit nebulous, a little bit vague, but I want to open it up to conversation. I, like, does, does what I'm saying, what do, I want to hear people's reactions to what I'm saying. Um, does the concept of like, feeling anxiety and it being almost a cue or a, 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 a tip of, like so suddenly we see the tip of the iceberg so we can move into something greater make sense or is that totally bunk? Is that, is that insane? And also this idea of like, um, do you have experiences of when feeling anxious or worried, um, maybe there was something good about it in terms of like, so what I find beautiful is God finally, when God finally starts to worry is when uh, they're kind of, God's like in, in there in our midst again. Um, when, uh, when being anxious together um, can, uh, can lead to, um, can lead out of anxiety into recognition that we're not alone. Like we're like we're together in that space. Um, yeah. Does anyone have any any reactions to that? <laughs> 